I'd invite you this morning to take a Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Today we find ourselves in the 15th chapter of Revelation, the first four verses. If you're with us and present and able, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word as we read together Revelation 15. Then I saw another great angel, I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. There were seven angels with seven plagues, and these are the last, for with them God's anger is brought to an end. Then I saw what appeared to be a a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those who gained victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name were standing by the glass sea, holding harps from God. They sing the song of Moses, God's servant, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who won't fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and fall down and worship before you, for your acts of justice have been revealed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the blessings of the last uh, seven years being here has been pretty early on, we got connected into a small group that uh, folks mostly kind of around our age and life stage, and they have really become dear friends and an incredible support system for Deb and myself. And and I don't know that we've, you know, I don't know, I do a lot of teaching there. We mainly just kind of encourage each other, pray for each other. And And as I've been thinking about the ways that we've prayed for each other over the last several years, it kind of falls into three main categories. We pray a lot about, you know, we're all kind of midlife praying about our careers and stuff. And in particular, one of the people in the small group hogs a lot of time here because he has a a really difficult congregation. I mean, job. Um, And so we pray a lot about that. But um, we pray a lot about health. Um, We prayed especially the first few years, pray a lot for the, the health of our parents. And uh, two or three of us have lost a parent over these last few years, and we've prayed for each other, encouraged each other. Uh, we've been joking recently, in the last couple of years, our prayer requests have turned from the health of our parents to our own health. Uh, had a couple of cancer battles and some other things that we've been praying and encouraging each other through. But without question, the thing that we have prayed about most and continue to pray about most, and because of our life stage and because of the concern of our heart, is Really, we pray all the time for the, the life and faith transition of our children. Um, most of our kids, as I've shared, you know, our, two of ours had birthdays recently, so all of ours are in their 20s now. And so we, th- that transition from young adulthood, from, from adolescence into young adulthood, especially in the challenges of faith, and th- those are just really heavy on our hearts. And I'm sure many of you as parents and grandparents and uh, friends of people in that age would resonate with that. And I have to say, I I want my kids, uh, this won't shock you, but I I want my kids to do well academically. I want them to lean into their education. I I even at some level want them to be kind of intellectuals. I I think anti-intellectualism is really dangerous, and in particular is dangerous in the church. However, as much as I want them to lean into that and grow into that and develop their minds that God has given to them, I also, though, want them to avoid a kind of intellectual idolatry. And in particular, uh, an intellectual idolatry, and I'm going to use a technical term here, that draws us into seeing life solely within what sociologists call the imminent frame. Meaning that this is all there is. 
And we may not know how to explain everything, but that's only because we haven't worked at it long enough. And oftentimes then what happens with that sort of intellectual elitism is that then there's no space left then for the transcendent. There's no space for the reality of mystery and for the reality of the God who is alive and who breaks into that. I really want my kids to be successful. I want them to do well. I want them to move out of my house. I want them, I want them to use their unique giftedness in ways that are a blessing to others. And to use that in ways that, that honors the call that we all have upon our lives to be participants, co-creators with God in the participation of the redemption of creation. And I realize that, that some sense of their own value will come from the ability to support themselves and to care for those that they love. And not only that, but for that even to spill over then and to care for others around them. However, as much as I want them to be successful and to find roles of leadership in the world, I also fear that they will come to equate their value with their ability to accumulate. I've said this to you before, but it bothers me that we often ask, the language that we use is, what is so-and-so worth? And what we mean is how much money they have, but that's the way we phrase it, because so often in our culture, we see worth with bank account. And I fear that rather than standing up and changing unjust systems, they will simply be drawn into them and continue and even strengthen, perhaps, the oppressiveness of those systems. I fear that they, in the pursuit of success, will become reflections of the gods of consumption. And I, I pray that God will give them power, authority. But I fear that as they are given that, they will become purveyors and misusers of that authority and power that God gives to them. I've really wanted my kids to do well in things like athletics and arts. I haven't worried too much about the athletic part because they have half my DNA, so I knew that wasn't probably going to be really dominant. But I have wanted, like many of you, for my kids to experience all the good things that come through participation and teamwork and creativity and competition and performance. There's something really beautiful, by the way, about sport and something really meaningful about the arts. However, as we all know, they also have very dark sides to them and also reflect forms of oppression. And even though I'm going to spend a lot of time watching golf and basketball and baseball this afternoon, every once in a while we be, need to be reminded of how much time we devote to things that in the end are really childhood games and are kind of trivial. I want my children to be healthy. I want them to have good relationships. I want my kids to take care of their bodies as gifts from God. I want them to know how beautiful they are. They have been given an innate sense of God's beauty. I want them to not only have friends, but I want them to be the kind of people others find attractive. People who, they, who others want to be in relationship with them. And I want them to be open to the possibility of not only friendship, but perhaps in the leading of God, ultimately to enter into lives of intimate love and covenant and relatedness. However, I know very well how treacherous this aspect of their life can be. 
I want them to know their beauty, but I also know it is very easy to move them into issues with their body. It is easy to enter into sexual addiction. It is, inter, it, it is easy to enter into damaging and abusive rather than healthy and life-giving relationships. The potentials in that area of their life for what St. Augustine would call misshaped loves or misformed desire are just abundant and rampant. And part of the reason I fear those realities for them is I know that they're going through this time period where they're making really difficult challenges, choices, and the challenges are rife. I know that because it also cuts through the center of my own heart and yours. It's not just their challenge, it's mine and yours. And so how do we navigate the complexity of that reality? Well, we do it with re relationships and friends and connections. We recognize that stories, na narratives matter, the sources of those stories that shape our lives and the kinds of stories that we come to believe to be most true. Practices matter. Thank you for joining in worship this morning because practices do matter and they shape our lives. And so as we think about what it means and we pray for our young people, and we pray for ourselves as we navigate that journey, we sometimes use categories like this. We'll use categories like the world and the church or culture and faith. But the reality is when we use language like world and church, those aren't exactly pure categories either. Because every time a preacher like me rants about the world, we also have to acknowledge much of the world is good and created by God. And it's not to be fully rejected. And so part of the challenge is we absolutely know in a few minutes I'm going to bless you and send you into the world, rightly. And on the other hand, we know the church isn't always fully pure. Not this one, but some others that I've heard about can be broken and challenging and difficulty and filled with sin and injustice. And when we use terms, preachers like me, about the culture, that's not exact either because the culture isn't monolithic. It's not just kind of one thing, just drive down 12th Avenue. There's all sorts of restaurants. All sorts of cultures just represented in a few blocks along 12th Avenue. And a lot of that culture is good and a lot of that culture is broken. And, and so it is challenging too. And, and it's right that the word, um, the root word of the word culture is the word cult because there is a worshiping aspect to it that we'll come back to. And the same is true for faith, that faith is not always as clean as we want to make it for some of the things that we believe we probably shouldn't. And some of the things we actually call faith can sometimes be really unhealthy and not life-giving, not only to us, but not to others. And so all that to say, this is hard. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Let's just pray. Um, but here's the deal. If we feel that, to quote the, to sort of misquote the Sermon on the Mount, if we who are broken, evil, and sinful know how to feel this way for our children and grandchildren, how much more does the Creator feel this for the creation? How much more? So as we get into Revelation this morning, and this morning I'm going to try to attempt to do something really crazy. I'm going to preach three and a half chapters. So get your Bible out. Go to Revelation chapter 12. But this morning as we look at this section that in many ways is the hardest section of maybe the hardest book to interpret. Hallelujah. Um, we're going to try to do our best this morning. But as you turn to Revelation chapter 12, let me uh, take out a slide and remind you of where we've been. So this is kind of where we've been. We started in Revelation chapter 4. There's a vision, a throne, one seated on the throne. There's a scroll in the, in the hand. 
sealed. No one can open the seals except the lion of the tribe of Judah who is conquered. But when he looks, he sees it's not lion, it's lamb. And then in chapter 6, the seals begin to open and begin to to wreak havoc on all of our places of security. And that chapter ends with this question, who can stand? To which chapter 7 is the answer. This 144,000, the whole people of God, are being redeemed and brought out of this challenge and brokenness. They have found their security in the Lamb. But then he looks and he sees this multicultural tribe from every nation and language and ethnicity who are marked by the Lamb and they can stand. And then in chapter 8, it begins with a a promise that our prayers are heard before the throne of God today. But then the trumpets start blasting and these exodus-like plagues come out and all of this brokenness begins to happen. But the the thing that I wanted you to pay attention to most is at the end of chapter 9, after all these seals are open and all these trumpets blow, nobody repents. Makes absolutely no difference. And so last week we looked at chapters 10 and 11 that really talks about these pictures then of the church. If these judgments haven't made a difference, what will? Perhaps it's the church that will eat the scroll or be marked out as the unique place of God's presence, like the temple. And who in their life together will embody both the law and the prophets, who will face challenges but who will be vindicated. And at the end of that, chapter 11, 90% of the city is redeemed and all but 7,000 of the people join the hallelujah chorus. And he shall wait forever and ever. Woo, glory. All right, well, let's go to chapter 12. So chapter 12, we find a story that we could title The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon. This image says, sometimes there are, if you've grown up, in church, their authors are people who take who start with the gospel story and then write literature to try to illustrate that or make that more accessible sometimes when we're children, but even to have a kind of imagination that, that develops. And so my two favorites are obviously here, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you're a Lewis fan or a Tolkien fan. It's okay to be a fan of both. We don't have to fight about this. But then there are others who've done, who haven't started with the gospel and moved. But there are times when we try to take cultural narratives that started as cultural narratives and try to find ways of maybe taking the gospel and saying, well, that is sort of like this. Now, I may not be here next week for these three examples, but (laughs) I... I oftentimes will show the movie The Matrix in classes. Um, it's, it's violence and scientific, science fiction, all that kind of stuff. But it is a fascinating, in some ways, way of thinking about the gospel being unplugged from the Matrix. In fact, when Neo unplugs, he goes through a kind of baptism ceremony and ends up with this community who's actually living in the real world, which is really hard, right? I know this one may get me in trouble, but there are a lot of folks who've tried to use like the Harry Potter novels to say... There is a kind of Christ figure likeness in the way that Harry ends up giving his life for others. One of my favorite little books in my library is a book called The Gospel According to the Simpsons. Now, I know that that's challenging, and I could give you some examples of times when that has not been done well. But a number of scholars argue that's what John is trying to do in the 12th chapter of Revelation. There's a famous first century story. The story of Apollo's defeat of the dragon. 
And then it appears that what the Revelator is doing in chapter 12 is retelling that story of Apollo's defeat of the dragon as a way of re-narrating the story of Christ and the church. It is interesting that the story of Apollo and the dragon, you can go to the next slide, the, the, the story of Apollo and the dragon was co-opted by a number of em Roman emperors as ways of narrating themselves as Apollo going out into the world to conquer all of these chaotic dragons all around. Oftentimes in the coinage, there would be the sort of radiant beams of Apollo coming out of the emperor's head. You may not find this interesting, but even in the 20th century, we have adopted this myth. When we sent rockets out into space, when NASA sent rockets out into space, we named the capsules Apollo. Apollo 10, 11, 12, sending them out to conquer the dragon of dark, deep, dark space. Uh, but what John seems to do is take that narrative, and in his version of the story, the dragon, Satan, the accuser, has been defeated, thrown out of the expanding new creation space of God, so that Satan can no longer accuse the saints. However, He's been unleashed in the world and is now this cornered animal like a dragon who knows that their time is ending, but is not going to give up without a fight. And so although he can no longer accuse the saints in heaven, he can accuse the martyrs, he can make accusations in our lives. And so there's this principality and power that's at work in the systems of the world. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 13, in the imagination of the revelator, the dragon also has two beasts. Some scholars call them the unholy trinity. And the first beast, and I think I have an image of it, the first beast is the beast from the sea. Now hang with me. John seems to be using language from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel... Daniel is dealing with the fact that God's people have encountered empire after empire after empire. The Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians. And in the book of Daniel, there are these four beasts that emerge from the sea that wreak havoc on God's people, but they all eventually die. Most Old Testament scholars would say it's a way of saying there's a myth that empires have that they are eternal, but they are not. And so though the Persians came along and thought they would be eternal, they were not. And though the Medes came along and thought they were eternal, they were not, etc. But the Son of Man is Lord over all of these dying empires. Amen. So what appears to happen here in the 13th chapter is that this first beast that emerges out of the sea in the Revelator's imagination is like taking those four beasts and putting them in a blender. And out comes this super beast ah, that has parts of all of the empires. It's a fascinating way of thinking probably about first century Rome as the world's superpower. There have been great empires in the past, but there has never been an empire like this one. And think about the might it has and the economic power it has and the military strength that it has. Certainly if there is ever an empire that is the kingdom of God, the eternal city, it's got to be Rome. And the problem with this first beast is that the dragon is behind it, trying to get us to give our loyalty and find our security and our identity in all of those things. Are you with me? We're going to come back to this. But then there's a second beast that emerges from the land. And uh, this picture, 
is the one I found. It kind of looks like a golden doodle with horns, but um, <laughs> forgive me for that. But, but this beast emerges from the land. And I know this is terrible for your pastor to say, but this is my favorite beast. The beast that emerges from the land, land is fascinating because it looks like the lamb, but it speaks like the dragon. It is likely that, that this, in John's imagination, are all of those imperial cultic practices. Some of you who are familiar with first century culture know there would be these massive community celebrations where meat would be sacrificed to the idols, where people would gather and they would give homage to the emperor and they would celebrate their loyalty to the empire and they would... I was going to get myself in trouble. I was going to say eat hamburgers and hot dogs. But they, they would sacrifice the meat to the idols. And they would find their identity and their loyalty there. Are you with me? And the problem is it has religious aspects to it. And because it has religious aspects to it, it invites us to worship. But if you remove the skin of that worshiping lamb, it's actually the voice of the dragon. This is important, I think, for two reasons. One, it is a reminder of something I say to you a lot, and that is that as we are sent out into the world, into the various cultures, everything we do is a form of worship. When you go to the mall to buy a pair of jeans, you're not just buying jeans, you're being taught what to love. When you go to a sporting event, you're not just watching a sporting event, you're also being taught in some ways what to love. When you watch television, you're not just being entertained, you're also being taught what to love. It doesn't matter what we do, they're cultural liturgies. That doesn't mean we live separately from them, but we better be aware of what they try to do to us. And so for the revelator, he wants them to see, the first century church to see, these practices that the empire invites them into are not neutral. They are learning to love something. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel who recognize Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want us to abandon the worship of Yahweh. He just wants to make sure Yahweh isn't first in our hearts. And as we do this act that just confirms that we're good citizens, the problem is if we do it too long, at some point we will be citizens of Babylon and not children of God. They're not neutral. Are you with me? The second thing that I think is important, this is why it's my favorite beast, because it's also a reminder that just because you came to church today doesn't mean we were exempted from the words of the beast. And so let me say something that will sound like a joke, but I mean it in all sincerity. If you ever discern that in my leadership or in the leadership of other pastors here, especially as we proclaim the word, that we're gathered together and we're using Jesus' language, but we're actually preaching nationalism, Or I'm using Jesus' language, but I'm actually preaching consumerism. I'm using Jesus' language, but I'm actually preaching militarism. I'm using Jesus' language, but I'm actually preaching a kind of 21st century sensuality. Vote me out. 
For this beast is a reminder that it is very easy, even for us in the church, to look like the lamb, but speak just like the dragon. So we got these beasts, and now we got to talk about the mark of the beast. And I have a really bad picture here. So, (laughs) I'm sorry. So in chapter 13, we get the mark of the beast. Now, I've already, and this is a bad Nazarene metaphor, but I've already kind of laid my cards on the table here. Some, they, they were rook cards, so it's okay. But um, <laughs> some of you do not get that joke, and I'm happy that you don't. <laughs> Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, some read these as historical predictions and get all sorts of fascinating charts out of them. I have said to you, and, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that's what this literature, this literature is meant to do. It is not literature that's meant to cause us angst as we try to figure out what the future is going to be. But this literature is meant to be theological pictures, theological imagery. And so I don't think that the mark of the beast is a barcode or something that we will get on our heads. It is a way, though, of imagining what it means as we navigate the challenges of the dragon and these two beasts. What happens when our lives become actually captured by those and we become reflections of them? So some scholars think the number is actually, this next slide, is a reference to Nero Caesar. And there's ways that you can take his name, put them into Hebrew, take those Hebrew letters, add them all up, and interestingly, they add up to 666. And so it may be this really creative way that the revelator is saying to us, be really careful because every once in a while, leaders come along that actually show what we actually do believe. And Caesar, and in particular Nero, who's crazy, embodies so much of what the empire really is about. And so don't be marked by his life. I actually think there's something a little more subtle going on. The next slide there's a fascinating story in the first Kings where the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon and she sees all his wealth. One of my favorite parts of the text is Solomon has so much gold that silver's like rocks in those days. And in this text, first Kings 10, 14, it says every year Solomon weighed his gold and it weighed 666 talents of gold. To which my curious mind says, something is happening here. Either Solomon has broken scales and every year it comes out to 666. Or the narrator is trying to say to us, even though Solomon has so much gold, every year when he weighs it, it never comes to seven. It never comes to completion. It always comes to 666. And therefore Solomon says, not enough gold, go get more. And so I I think the imagery of the mark of the beast is this, that it is very easy for our lives to be captured by things that absolutely will never satisfy, even though we pursue them with our whole hearts. And as much as you pursue them, much as they mark your life, it always comes to incompletion. And so do not be marked by that life. Do not be drawn into it. And in Revelation chapter 14, this army shows up. A people who are marked by the Lamb, a revisitation of those 144,000. And then there's two images, two kind of parables that are part of that. One is that there is a great harvest going on in this fascinating picture with the sickle in the Lord's hand. 
those who are ready to be harvested, those who have grown, and those who like the seed that was planted in good soil, whose lives are produced for the kingdom and they're ready to be received. Others, though, are like the grapes. Think of this Eucharistically bread and wine. But when the wine is made, the grapes are trampled. I love Lucy has ruined this for us, but they, they're, they're trampled. Fascinating image of judgment. Those who become drunk from the wine of the beast are trampled like the grapes. And so we get to chapter 15 for the text for today. So we're finally to the sermon. In those little verses that we read, all of these pictures of the challenge that we walk through of dragon and beast, of lamb and of life, culminate with this picture. A people who have walked through the, the challenges of that and have come to the other side, and now they see three things. The sea is crystal. I love that image. In a few weeks, we'll come to chapter 21, verse 1, which is one of my least favorite verse in Revelation. It says that in the new creation, there's no more sea. I don't like that verse. Californians who moved to Idaho don't like that verse at all. We left the Pacific behind. Lake Lowell is nice and everything, but <laughs> kind of like beachfront property in the new creation. But the image here is that all those places of chaos, of tohu bohu, they are now no longer threats. They are now like glass. But interestingly, it's not just glass, but that, that crystal is on fire. Most likely an image that as we have passed through these challenges, and we have no choice but to pass through them. As we pass through these challenges, something about the presence of the fire of the Spirit changes us. And then the people sing like they sang in Exodus 15 when they got to the other side of the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses. But now in Revelation 15, they sing not just the song of Moses, but they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And it is such a different song. When the people sing the song of Moses rightly, it's a song of celebration that Pharaoh and his armies have died in the sea. But I want you to notice this. The song of the Lamb is a song about a people who persevere and are changed and are marked by the Lamb, but a people who, because of that, all the nations of the world have been drawn to the light of the Lamb. It is not a song that celebrates destruction. It is a song that glories in God's great redemption. And so these in chapters invite us to recognize not just for the 20-somethings in this room are the challenge of faithfulness difficult. For it cuts through the heart of each and every one of us. And we need discernment and we need to recognize our, our battle is not just against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, the systemic forms of sin that rob us of our dignity and rob us of God's created purposes in us. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. <laughs> and that there is one that walks beside us that transforms us and can keep us. And not just keep us, but allow us to thrive and be what we were created to be. There's an old hymn that goes like this. I think you'll know the words. 
Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to to sing the second verse, but think about Revelation 15 as you do. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting out their golden crowns around the glassy sea. the creator, sustainer, redeemer, transformer of all things. We thank you today for your word that invites us to take seriously the challenge we find ourselves in. The challenge of being in the world but not being of it. I pray your blessing on us as a congregation that you would help us not in our own strength or in our own ability, but truly through the power of your spirit to discern what it means to be a community that is a reflection of the life of the lamb and not the beast. Have mercy on us for ways that we have so often looked like the lamb but spoken just like the dragon. Change our hearts. And God, I, I especially pray, and it's a very selfish prayer, um, I pray for four kids and their significant others who I so desperately want to find levels of success and belonging and, and purposefulness in the world. And I, I more than pray that you would protect them. I pray that you would use them but I pray that you would keep them from being marked by all that wants to shape and possess their life. The prayers of friends and parents and grandparents come to you as a sweet aroma today to say, God, help, help us, help those we love. We trust you. We trust even our prodigals to you today. Pray that your spirit would guide and heal, forgive, transform. 
And in a world that is so full of injustice and brokenness, teach us what it means to be reflections of you. Until that day when we cast our crowns around the glassy sea, change and transform us today. Make us your church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Is anyone able to break the seal? 
If you've listened well this morning, as we are sent out into the world, um, we're sent out a little bit like uh, Martin Luther felt. Though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us. Such an important line. We shall not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. This morning, as we walk through the challenges of this life, we do not go alone. We walk with each other. Thank you for walking with us. But we walk with him, and we're being changed by him. And may the God who extends and speaks peace to us may sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies be up sound and blameless 
marked by him. (laughs) And he who called us, he is faithful and he will finish his work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.